Well, Father, it is our joy this morning to gather, to give thanks, to sing our praise to King Jesus, to open our Bibles and to hear your word, to sit quietly and to wait upon you, to show us and to teach us and to humble us. And make that our prayer today, Father, that you would take our lives and let them be consecrated all to thee. Father, take the sword of your word and plunge it in now. Challenge us, grow us, and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember when I was a little kid in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, maybe into the 70s, there was a game that some of my friends had that I wanted very much and never got. It was a game, maybe you'll remember this game, I think it made a comeback somewhere along the line. It was a table game and you unfolded it and it had quite the setup to it, sort of some plastic scaffolding and some things. It was called Mousetrap. Do you remember that? And if I remember correctly, it had a a big steel ball bearing and you would drop it on one end and it would run on some tracks and kind of like down a roller coaster unit and around and it would trip levers and it would ring bells and it would move and it would go and the whole idea was for it to get at the end for the ball to trip just the right thing and the basket would drop and try to catch the mouse in the cage well i want you to hold that image in your head it's the it's the it's the cause and effect principle isn't it if this takes place and it levers this, and it switches this over, and it moves this, and then all of this happens, isn't it interesting that by the end, you're caught in the cage? And you look back, and you see all kinds of things that happened to make this happen. Without this cause, you'd have never had this effect, you'd have never had this cause, and this effect. And as we turn, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 37 this morning, I want you to keep the principle of cause and effect alive in your thinking, And in your imagination, and actually it's not too unrealistic to picture Joseph, our mouse today, and the cage is going to come in around him and catch him. There's a cause and effect that's going to happen. We are now entering in our study in the book of Genesis, as we've been here for many months. I trust that you've benefited from it, as have I. But we now enter the final section of the book of Genesis. It's about 11 chapters, and essentially it is entirely about the life of Joseph, but it is the telling of the story uh, as it continues of Jacob. We're going to interrupt Joseph for one week, and it's always kind of a puzzle why chapter 38 just kind of stops in the middle of the story of Joseph after it started, and it talks about his older brother Judah, who was quite a scoundrel Somewhat of an R-rated message next week. You might be warned if you have younger children. We'll be careful and appropriate with our words. But some serious matters in chapter 38. In chapter 37, we lay the groundwork for these 10, 11 chapters to conclude. You have to understand what's happening in chapter 37 to understand how God uses all these causes and effects to finally get Joseph where he wants him to be to use him in the way he wants to use him, to impact the lives of many. We're going to read through chapter 37 and break it down for the first part of our sermon. 
And then we will use in our concluding remarks uh, some, draw some life application and some principles. It's going to take us a while as it's a long narrative. We want to knock out all of chapter 37 if we can. And you need to fight something. You need to be careful that you don't think you already know all about this story and go to sleep on me. All right? And that's kind of easy to do with these very familiar Bible stories. And I doubt that there's any story in the Bible apart from the birth of Jesus that is more repeated. Maybe Daniel in the lion's den. But it is a repeated story. It is one that we know well, this story of Joseph. It's quite a remarkable story. I have been finding as I've gone through the book of Genesis this uh, past couple years with you that I thought I knew more about it than I did. And maybe that's been your experience. And as I've uh, dug in and studied and looked at it afresh and anew, the Lord has used it to encourage me greatly. So let the familiarity of the story work for you and not against you this morning. One of the things that you need to realize with Joseph is a little different than, than with some of the other Bible heroes. Joseph, uh, though he starts out a little bit of a stutter step in his immaturity and in his lack of wisdom, we'll talk more about that in a minute. This is a very much... a an earthy story. It is, it is human-based in the sense of we don't have angelic appearances. We don't have Joseph receiving direct revelation like Abraham and, and Isaac did and Jacob did. And Jacob did. We don't have, we don't have uh, uh, the fourth member, the third member of the... <laughs> man, I messed that up. We don't have like the three Hebrew children in the fire. We don't have a fourth who would probably be a pre-incarnate form of Christ there present with him. We just have Joseph living his life living for God, a righteous man. It's not, it's not supernatural. It's just the real thing, like you and, and like I have. All right? And so I hope that uh, you'll benefit from it. I want to use four words to break down this long narrative. A narrative is a story, of course. And as we read it, let me throw out four words uh, at you. And the first is the word history. Verses 1 through 11 are going to uh, lay a groundwork for what's happening in the story. It's a little bit like the writer lets you know this is what's been going on in this household. It's, it's the context of Joseph's life at his 17th year. He's a 17-year-old boy now. And we see now in what has been a very dysfunctional family in many ways, incredible family breakdown. And here's the history of it. Here's a little more of the details why it happened. Let's pick up the first 11 verses. It begins like this. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob. Now, let me stop just a minute, interrupt myself, and say it's kind of an interesting way to start this story because from now on it's going to be all about Joseph. But in telling the story of Joseph, it is telling the story of Jacob. You'll recall that last week in chapter 36, we had the the family tree, the lineage of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. And the lesson learned there was incredible, wasn't it? As we stepped back from that genealogy and just kind of bounced off that genealogy, we recognized that it was indeed a, a lineage of the lost. It was a family tree that was characterized by pagans and by the lost rather than a godly line. And the challenge for us is that, that we would pass on the truth to the next generation. That we would, even if we're not part of a family tree of godliness, that we might change the ebb and flow of sinfulness in our families. 
start over afresh and anew, that we would not bear testimony in our old age of lost pagan children. So here it is, the lineage of Jacob through his sons, and particularly his son Joseph. Verse 2, chapter 37, thinking in terms of cause and effect that ends up getting Joseph caught in the mousetrap. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Wives, uh, Bilhah's sons that he was with would have been Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah would have been Gad and Asher. So he was paired up with them to watch sheep and to watch over the flocks. And he brought their father a bad, if you have the King James Bible, it's going to say evil report about them. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Let's just stop and take a look now at the family context. The The word is history that we're looking at because we're going to enter into uh, just an incredible season of hatred and horror in this family. Here's what's been happening in the first 11 verses. It kind of spells it out. There's three main things. The first has to do with this bad report of his brothers. You'll notice that uh, Joseph, though he's 17 now, he's old enough to tend flock and he's evidently learning the trade of of shepherd, and he's learning about animal husbandry. He's learning about what it takes to, to increase the flocks and to, to earn a profit, to be out in the fields working, to be, to be strong enough to, to function like a young man should. And Joseph is paired up with these brothers that are, no doubt, they're older than he, but probably not a whole lot older than he, and he's old enough to be with him. But because he is his father's favored son... He's also used by his father in in probably an inappropriate way, and evidently he works well with it, where he brings reports back to his father. You go out in the field, son. You work with your brothers. You watch out for those scoundrels. I'm so glad you're a good boy, Joseph. And in his old age, Jacob makes mistake after mistake. He, He will offend his other sons repeatedly, as he's done in the past. And Joseph, in his immaturity and his lack of wisdom as a 17-year-old boy, he knows nothing but the praise of his father. He knows nothing but being spoiled. He knows nothing but the seat of honor. He knows nothing but the praise of his father. He believes it. And no doubt he's naive and lacking in wisdom and, and, and unwisely. 
He, he evidently runs back and forth from the fields to his father, giving this evil report, the, the word translated bad in the NIV, evil in the King James. These guys evidently really were rascals. These guys evidently were sinful boys. I don't know what they did, whether they cut into other people's territories, whether they, whether they stole, whether they just slacked on the job. Whatever it was, it wasn't praiseworthy. And the Hebrew scholars say that the word report that's translated into English from the Hebrew report has a little bit of a negative spin to it, as in a, a tattletale type report. It has the flavor of na 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 to it. This bad report that he runs in from the fields to his father. Well, that's one of three things mentioned in the list that causes the boys to say, I hate you, Joseph. Terrible, isn't it, for brothers to speak like that? Building upon these bad reports, it's all couched in the context, verses 3 through 5, of the favoritism of his father. Notice he says, In Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He's kind of like Grandpa Dad, you know. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. The NIV translates it richly ornamented. It's a coat of many colors that we, many of us who grew up in Sunday school, were familiar with. And once again, the uh, Hebrew scholars, especially some of the guys who are doing some contemporary work, have decided that they don't know what that Hebrew word really means. And so I don't mean to ruin your picture in your mind, but it's very likely that the word that's been translated, coat of many colors, simply means long sleeve coat. That's what a lot of guys seem to favor in the translation. The idea there of an ornamented coat, it was certainly a distinct coat. It was something that when Joseph put it on, he looked different. It was a coat that was intended by his father to, to stand out. It was a coat that when put on Joseph, represented to all the other brothers, this boy is special, more special than you. And and Jacob, in his old age and in his lack of judgment, exasperates his other sons, elevating Joseph. Now stop and think about it. It's likely that in Jacob's mind, Joseph, being his 11th born son, but the firstborn of his beloved Rachel. Do you remember his firstborn son, Reuben? Remember what he did? Going into his father's wife, Bilhah, and violating her inappropriately and sexually making her into a living widow from then on, that Jacob would never go into her again. Who knows what all has gone on in the mind of Reuben, but Reuben has simply earned for himself, and we will cover it in the near future, an unblessing when Jacob, at the end of his life, gives a blessing to all of his other sons. Reuben is condemned because of that behavior. He's got some other sons. He has... Simeon and Levi, but what did they do? They took out their swords and went and committed genocide and killed the Shechemites. You remember that horrible story, the third day after the circumcision? Everybody was sore. His boys are just a mess. The others joined into the pillage, but not Joseph. Not my good boy Joseph. He was probably too young at the time, for one thing. The other thing that you have happening here is that in Jacob's mind, as I've referenced, he's the firstborn of Jacob's beloved Rachel. This is the only wife that he evidently really, really loved. And so in his mind, he is going to elevate Joseph to the 
to the front of the room. He's going to put Joseph in the first chair. He's going to put Joseph in the chair of blessing. He's going to put Joseph in the place of honor for the family blessing. That through him, God's promise to Grandpa Abraham and Grandpa Isaac and through his father Jacob, that Joseph would be the son of blessing, the son of promise, receive the birthright. He's the one through whom God will work to bless the world. And everybody who blesses him will be blessed. And we will see that illustrated in Egypt, but not to the degree that Judah... Ah, oh, doesn't God keep upsetting the apple cart? The one you think's going to get the blessing doesn't. The one through whom you think God's going to work the most doesn't. Remember what the choir just sang? Were you listening? We praise the Lion of Judah. Who's that? The great, 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 great grandson of the guy in chapter 38, who you're not going to like at all. He's a dirtbag. And God says it's through the line of Judah that Jesus will come. But Joseph is a great blessing, and Joseph does stand as a, as a great example of a, of a man of integrity. Now, he's going to learn a lot from 17 to 19 here. He's going to grow up in a hurry, but this favoritism worked against him. And as Jacob lifts him up and puts this coat on him, this robe, it says in verse 4, that when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph... He's used to being sworn at by his brothers. He's used to being belittled by his brothers. There's a third thing that lays the groundwork for the horrible events of the following in the chapter. Not only do we have Joseph as this courier of of bad reports from his brothers in the fields to his father, we have Joseph a model of favoritism and, and kind of the spoiled, rotten one of his compared to his brothers, and they hate him, and he's got this coat. Joseph, in his immaturity, evidently in his naivety, begins to talk about the dreams he's been having. Uh, I don't know if God's ever spoken to you in a dream. In the Bible, God speaks to people through dreams. I don't know that he couldn't still do it. I would not elevate it to the authority of Scripture at all, but I have heard stories. I heard one just recently where God used a dream to nudge a person, to, to alert them and, and challenge them, make them aware of themselves in a certain way. I don't know. Dreams are a funny thing. You don't build your theology on dreams, that's for sure. But Joseph started having dreams, and in the text, it doesn't say where the dream comes from. We know the end of the story, and that's another thing we have to keep in mind as we look work through this whole story, is we know how it's going to end up. We know what's happening. We've been to sight and sound and seen Joseph. We know what's going on. We have to be careful with that. Remember, in this context, they had no idea. So imagine, Joseph strutting his stuff in his cool, ornamented, multicolored, multifaceted jacket with long sleeves that probably came clear down to his ankles. It was not designed to work in. It was a, it was a, a princely-type robe. It was to set him apart. He liked to wear his jacket, and no doubt old, old dad Jacob liked to see him wear it. I bought it for you, son. Why don't you wear the thing? It just nails on a chalkboard to his brothers. And now he walks up wearing his jacket and says, Hey, guys. Yeah, what do you want? I had this dream. Let me tell you about it. You see, we were working. You don't work. Yes, I do. Well, I were working. And I got the sheaves together. We were doing the sheaves. And mine stood up. 
and all of yours gathered around in a circle and you, you bowed down to me. Isn't that an amazing dream? Yeah, get out of here. And they hated him more. Joseph, get a clue. Be quiet. And I think that his perspective is, is one of naivety and, and one through which his father has just told him so much how special he is. He believed all the press about himself. He couldn't understand why these guys couldn't get it. And to make matters worse, he has another dream. And this time it's the sun and the moon and all the stars. And let me tell you guys, that's you. And you're going to bow down to me again? And Jacob says, boy, what's your problem? And there it is. The history, the historical context of family breakdown. And it says, and they hated him even more. We move on. The second part of our story I've already kind of emphasized. It has to do with the jealous bitterness of his brothers. The second word we have is hatred. Let's read what it says. Now his brothers had gone to graze, verse 12, their father's flocks near Shechem. That was where they had slaughtered all those guys that they circumcised. And Israel said to Joseph... As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. Of course, he was obedient, Joseph. So he, sent, so he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And then he sent them off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived in Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are gazing, they're grazing their flocks? Uh, they have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. Listen, this verbal hatred is now, now being mobilized and put into action. And they want to they murder their brother. It's a horrible thing. Hatred that has just poisoned them in their soul. We have in this section right here a reminder of this cause and effect mousetrap game thing. It's kind of interesting to me as I looked at the passage. Isn't it interesting that at this certain time, Joseph just happened to be sent where all of his brothers were. And then they weren't where they were. And so he just happened to be wandering around. He's wandering around, it says. And some guy says, what do you need, son? And he just happened to be a guy who happened to overhear the guys say, we're going to Dothan. And so they happened to know that. And so he sent out and he happens to run into him there. And there happened to be empty wells there at that time. And then there's going to happen to be a slave trading train go through and camels all all this one lever trips another lever, which trips another lever, which trips another lever, which brings the cage crashing down on Joseph. If you didn't know better, you would think that God almost had his hand on this whole thing. Hmm. We have history here of why it's happening, the bad report, the favoritism, the dreams. It turns into this horrible, jealous, bitter hatred. The third word is horror. Horror. When you read this passage, you... Especially if you're a parent, you have to be horrified at the reality of, of your children doing this to one another. They look up, it says in verse uh, 12 and on, in verse 17, 
So Joseph went after his brothers, the end of verse 17. He found them, but they saw him in a distance. Before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him in one of these cisterns. And let's say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. You have to question Joseph again. They see him coming. We know later in the context of the story, he's wearing his coat. It's not a coat that's designed to go across the... I don't know, maybe it was warm, maybe it was cool weather. He's got this coat on again with the long sleeves and the ornaments and goes down to his ankles. And they can tell by his silhouette, it's that coat, it's that dreamer, it's, it's that punk brother. Oh! And Joseph just comes walking in, obeying his dad. Naive as all get out. Boy grows up in a hurry in the story, doesn't he? And we'll see what comes of his dream. Reuben... Reuben, the one who slept with his father's wife. Reuben is one who, it seems, continually is trying to win back the favor of his father, even though he did that evil deed. Reuben heard this. He tried to rescue him from their hands, perhaps to be able to bridge back and bridge the gap with his father. And He cared about his father enough to know, let's not take his life, he said. I take it that these boys were spread out with the animals across the countryside enough that perhaps they were coming together for meals and they were coming together at watering holes and they weren't always right together. And Reuben comes and they'd already cooked up the plan to kill him. They're fomenting this anger, this hatred. The group mentality has come in. They've gone to the lowest common denominator. And one boy's holding his knife in his hand, perhaps. And Reuben says, guys, guys, no, 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 no. Let's not do this. Don't shed any of his blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert. Don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him, him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. They took him and they threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. These are hardcore guys. You know that? They're brothers. I need this picture. Joseph comes walking up. He's got his cool coat on. Maybe he thought that 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 would remind them that he had a little bit of clout with their dad as they mouth off to him and spit his direction. And he comes walking up. And can you imagine the, the hot streak of emotional panic that went through Joseph when one of them laid heavy hands on that boy and threw him down and kicked him? His eyes go wide and his mouth is open and somebody else belts him upside the head with an open calloused hand. Somebody else is jerking the coat off him. Others are grabbing him. Hey, stop! No, wait! Bam! Bang! Blam! And down into the pit you go. Your mouth is bloody. Your ear is about rubbed off. Your knees and your hands are bleeding. And you can't figure out. Brothers, go to eat. Come on, guys. Let's eat some hot dogs. These guys are just hardcore, wicked men bash in the brains of their little brother, throw him into the cistern, plan to kill him, and sit down and eat burp. Judah comes to the rescue here, and Judah says to his brothers in the middle of this horrible scene, 
Hey, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Yeah, let's make a little money on the punk. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. Reuben shows up late again. He went back to his brother and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. They didn't even say, Our brothers, is this your son's robe? This is a horrible scene. And I was thinking about Joseph. He had had to be pretty beat up when he got thrown down into the hole. He has no idea what's going on. Then all of a sudden, somebody throws a rope down there and grab onto it. He holds onto the rope and he thinks, Judah spoke up, I'm going to get out of here. He gets up out of the hole and, and his brothers grab him and shove him and he falls on the ground in front of these camel legs and he looks up and there's a bunch of guys there, rough guys, gypsy-like traitors. One of them grabs him, one of them pops him with a whip, and the other one spits tobacco at him and says, get on that one, boy. Hey, guys, guys, hey, hey, hey! He's 17 years old. He's the baby of the family. He's, a, he's got little brother Benjamin, but just think of what's going on in his world. It's horror. Joseph's betrayal is an ugly thing. I guess the only thing that's greater in emotion in the passage is the conclusion of the story here in 37 is the heartbreak. Number four word is heartbreak, a father's brokenness. Verse 33, he recognized it and he said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth cloth and mourned for his son many days All his sons and daughters, there's more than Dinah, he had other daughters, came to comfort him, nameless though they are. But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go to the grave to my my son. I'll go to him after I die. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, verse 36, we end with a footnote in this part of the chapter. The Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain. Of the guard. Heartbroken old Jacob. They come back. They reach in a gunny sack and they pull out this coat, throw it down. Hey, Pops, why don't you take a look at this? Is this your son's coat? He picks it up. He looks at it, smeared with blood. And these guys are unbelievable. They concoct this plan. They slaughter a goat. They bleed it out on the coat. They make it look like it's all dirty and ripped up, evidently. Jacob sees the bloodstain, sees the coat, falls on his face, rips his clothing, and they stand there in silence and watch their old papa just about die in his grief on the floor. And then they take turns coming in to console him. You talk about duplicitous. You talk about hypocrites. You talk about rotten to the core. There it is. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And it lays the groundwork for what God is doing. It is interesting to me to catch up with Joseph 
as his brothers take the coat back to their father and continue to paint their lies and, and layer after layer of their falsified story, Joseph is on his way to Egypt, no doubt a number of days, if not weeks, of travel on a camel, or perhaps his hands are tied and he's walking behind. Let's go run up with Joseph and let's tell him, Hey, Joseph, peace, brother. Guess what? In about 22 years, you're going to look back on this and you're going to say, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, key verse to the whole passage. You're going to say, Joseph, what everybody did for evil back there, God brought into my life for good. Be comforted, Joseph. God is at work. This is God's plan of blessing for your life. I doubt that at this point, Joseph was any better at receiving that kind of input than we are. It occurs to me that there are three kinds of blessing that God brought into Joseph's life. And with this, we conclude. You see, Joseph has no idea at this point that one lever flips him over here to this track and he runs down this track and something shoves him over and this gate closes. So he turns around here and he runs down this track but that God is getting him exactly where he wants him. He's all beat up, and he's got a cage over him here. He's going to get out for a while, and he's going to go back in. We'll talk more about that later. God's plan of blessing for my life often includes, number one, unscheduled interruptions. His kid's 17 years old. He had a plan. He was going to go to college and be an engineer. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. No, you're not. You're going to get beat up, thrown into a pit in the middle of the desert, handcuffed and dragged off to Egypt. That's what you're going to do. But I don't like that. It doesn't matter. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says this. Listen, Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. I don't know about you, but I am no good at yielding my plans for God's purposes. I just don't like the way he does that. God, I had a plan. It's a good plan. You gave it to me. Sorry, son. My purpose will prevail. Here's what we're going to do. But God, I'm getting beat up right now. Yep. The guys on television that say when you love Jesus, you get Cadillacs, money, and, and beach houses... I'm going to cast them into outer darkness. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are liars. They are scum of the earth because they defraud old women and children. And it's false doctrine. My plan of blessing for you is to beat you up for a while and put you in a cage and interrupt your life. You ever think about the interruptions of your life being the very things that God has designed to get you where he wants you? even call it a blessing? Sometimes we don't think like that, do we? Janet will remind me of it. Yesterday afternoon, we went racing into Charlestown to get to Jonathan's soccer game by 4 o'clock, only to get there and him pulling into the parking lot to say from the back seat, my games are at Morgan's Grove Park. (laughs) Son, where did you think we were driving? And Janet's pretty good when old pop goes from zero to ten because this is more interruption and more whatever. 
Maybe God was keeping us from an accident. Well, he could have just, like, made a stop at Dairy Queen for a while and (laughs) kept us there. God's plan of blessing for my life often includes unscheduled interruptions. Proverbs 27.1 Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. I have a plan, and I just might interrupt your life. God's plan of blessing number two often includes unexplained injustices. Do you see that in Joseph's life? Not only does God interrupt him, but God brings incredible injustice to his life. God, he's walking behind his camel. He keeps having to watch where he walks. And he says, God, it's not fair. Have you ever noticed that God is just not about fair? God does all kinds of things that aren't fair. It's not fair that Yohani and Love in Malawi don't have much to eat today and that I'm going to overeat today. It's not fair, but God is loving, God is just, God has a plan, God has a purpose, God has a way of using these things, doesn't he? And in this injustice, Joseph is reminding him, I've been obedient, I've been righteous, I did what my dad wanted, I did everything I was supposed to do, I think, I thought, and here I am. The psalmist Asaph had a problem with this in Psalm 73, you don't have to turn there, but you might benefit by reading from it later. He said... He said, I looked around, and I'm one of the righteous ones in Israel. And when I looked around at the prosperity of the wicked, my feet almost slipped. I almost started going their way because God's not fair. I'm living for him, and I've got nothing. And my pagan neighbor just got a new boat, man. And, and my other neighbor, he's got a vacation house. And I've got, I just lost my job, and I love Jesus. I don't know what God processes in your life, but God often uses unexplained inequities, unexplained injustices. You find yourself saying, it's not fair, you need to be careful because you just might be talking back at one of the most important occurrences of your life where God is bringing this injustice into your life to trip this lever, to turn you this way, to make you go here, to get you out of here, to put you here, so that 22 years from now you're going to look back and you're going to say, that's the most important thing that ever happened in my life. Thirdly, and finally, God uses unrestrained, ignorant people to bless us. Do you see that in Joseph's story? Unrestrained, ignorant people. I use that word in two ways. Ignorant, it works in the sense of people who are called of God, people who are of prime spiritual stock, standing on the banks of the Curaway River with their hands open saying, we came to tell you about the love of Jesus. And the Alcas just throwing spears into them in their ignorance, thinking they're killing Mars, out of space freaks or something, not knowing that they're killing the finest people on the face of the earth. Ignorant. But God allowed it. God used it. God made it happen. God did exactly. He turned it for good. 
after the Alka Martyrs in 1956, 57 in there, those five men, Nate Saint, Roger Yodarian, Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, floodgate of missions opened around the world. Young people going to the field to take their place. God said, I I have a special mission for you guys, and I have some ignoramus people who don't know anything. They're going to fill you with spears because they think that you dropped in from outer space. I need you to die on a beach here so that I can wake up about 100,000 young people in the States. Okay. I also want to use ignorant people in the way we kind of in contemporary times use it, as in ignorant. That guy's so ignorant. That's the kind of people Joseph had in his life, isn't it? Joseph had ignorant brothers. They're just ignorant. They're stupid. They're hateful. They're mean. They can sit and roast a sandwich and eat it while he's screaming and wailing in a pit nearby. You know, some of you have had ignorant people highly impact your life negatively. Some of you every day have to overcome the doubt and the insecurity that some drunken, stupid, ignorant father, all that he did to you. Some of you have to pay the price of what ignorant people who are selfish and who are who are so aggressive in their sinfulness that they have lied about you, they have, they have put you on the chopping, chopping block, and, and you've done nothing to deserve it, and these ignorant people have, have cost you dearly and deeply. And God says, Joseph, you've got to wait a while, and I'm not going to explain it to you now, but I needed to interrupt your schedule, and I needed to... Bring some injustice your way. Really fire you up here. You sit around for a couple years here in a dark dungeon and think about all these things. And I also needed to bring a few ignorant people your way to bang you and bump you and change your track so I can get you where I want you. It's amazing, isn't it, how God works? Corey Tenboom, you know that name, right? Corey Tenboom was known for her speaking ministry after she was released from Ravensbrook. Um, I might not have said it correctly. Ravensbrook, the concentration camp where she and her sister were horribly treated and abused and her sister there died. What was her name again? Betsy. Betsy died, but... Corey was stronger and made it through. And Corey then, this is after World War II and the abuses that took place for hiding Jewish people in her father's clock shop in the, in the Netherlands, in Holland. And Corey went around with a speaking ministry to speak and she was known for this illustration right here. I thought it was a good one to kind of wrap this concept up. It says, when relating her sufferings in the Ravensbrück concentration camp in World War II... Corey Tenboom often would show the reverse side of an embroidered bookmark, which seems to be nothing but a senseless mass of tangled threads. And then she turns the bookmark to the front, where the threads spell out in a beautiful design, God is love. And then she would quote this poem. Listen, my life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. 
Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. A poem called The Loom of Time. Another poet said in Psalm 37, and with these words we end, just listen. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn away from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil, for evil men will be cut off. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Listen. When Paul wrote Romans eight twenty eight, it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that all things work together for good to them that love God. You let God get you where he wants to get you without an explanation. Let's pray. Father, would you take our lives now and would you help us to consecrate them to you? Father, would we have that great ability as the clay to stop screaming up at the potter? To be still and know that you are God and that you are at work in mysterious ways and that you're going to interrupt our plans and you're going to bring injustice our way that is so difficult to process. And these ignorant people that come and bang and bump us. We think off track, but Father, perhaps you're just getting us right where you want us to be. And so help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to be still. Help us to just be moldable today. Help us to put away our anger and our hatred and surrender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.